For those of you that I haven't met yet, uh, my name is Dave Lunsford. I used to be the pastor here. Great to be with you and great to share the word. Kyle told me you've been working your way through the book of Acts this summer. And he said this week's passage is Acts 19 through 22. And those of you that know me know it probably is not good for me to try to do four chapters of the Bible all in one day. <laughs> or all in one hour, excuse me. I could do it in a day. But, but uh, there is a, a critically important passage right in the middle of that section in Acts chapter 20 that uh, is just as important today as the day on which the Apostle Paul spoke it to the leaders of the church at Ephesus. Acts chapter 20, and I want to read starting in, in uh, verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day that I came to Asia... In what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility and with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but I proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore... I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone day and night with tears. So now, brethren, I commend to you, to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. In verse 28, when the Apostle Paul used the word uh, wolf and he put a modifier with it in some of your translations, it may say dangerous, in some it may say savage, in some it may say grievous. The actual word literally means heavy. A heavy wolf is going to come among you and heavy wolves are going to rise up from in the midst of you perverting God's word. Why in the world would God use the word heavy? I think here's an example. Whoops, there we go. I think here's an example of what Paul meant when he talked about the wolves that are heavy that are going to come among you. When he said this to the people in Galatia, after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me, and I went up by revelation and I communicated to them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, 
but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren, secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. That's the heavy part of the wolf in Acts chapter 20. See, what we find out as we look at the whole New Testament is this. The body of Christ as a whole and the members, the individuals who are part of that body are either living in the true word of God's grace, as Paul spoke of in Acts 20, that is the true liberating word of God, or they're living in some perversion of God's truth, which results in bondage, not in the freedom which God intended for us. In Acts 20, the word that describes those wolves, it means heavy, and there's bondage. And we understand that false doctrine is a form of bondage because that stands in contrast to the words of Jesus. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. When we come to Christ and know him through salvation, we are liberated from the sin that dominates and wants to control and wants to ruin our lives. But the false teacher who is pushed upon by the world, who is prompted by the devil, does not want us to live in freedom. He wants us to live in the bondage of some kind of false doctrine. You can, you can name the religion, you can name the secular ideology, but all of them result in some kind of bondage through the control of sin. God comes along and he says, look, I want to liberate you from that. But the, the, the difference between liberation and bondage is right here. Are we living in the true, plain, simple word of God, or, in, or are we trying to live based on some perversion of that word? When we see young men willing to take the name of Christ and to live for him, they've been liberated from those things that have held them back. But the, but the devil, through the world, through the false teachers, doesn't like that. He wants us to live in bondage. And so, we, we need to ask the question today, why is the word of God so important? What is that freedom that it gives us? Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, please. And we want to consider some, some truths from 2 Peter in other parts of the scripture, as we understand the great blessings of God's word. And the first one is quite simple. God's word gives eternal life. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace. Is there anybody in the world looking for peace? Not just corporately or nationally, but personally. How are we going to get it? Well, God says, I'm going to multiply it to you. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. 
Back in verse 3, he says, He's given us here in this word everything we need for life and godliness. And the word godliness literally means to be devoted to God. To be devoted, to be dedicated to God. And so I would ask the question, why do we need to be devoted to God? How does that bring us the blessing of God? Well, turn over in this first blessing of eternal life. Turn over to chapter 3 and see what God says about eternity and life and death. Chapter 3 and verse 10 But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things, all the stuff of our world will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness or devotion to God? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which... The heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, we who are believers in Christ, according to his promise, we look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him, in peace, without spot and blamelessness, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering or patience of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. There is coming a day when this planet is going to be dissolved. Uh, you can call me short-sighted. I know there's going to be global warming If Jay Inslee is right and this planet is going to dissolve or burn up in 15 years, you know what that means? That means we're going to be with the Lord. What? We're going to be with the Lord. If you're not looking forward to heaven, we need to have a talk after church. Because this world ain't better than the next one. And I know we ought to be stewards of the planet. Please, don't send me the emails. But the destiny of this planet is not eternal existence. It is removal and, and replacement with a perfect one, like the first one that God created before it was contaminated with sin. Christ is going to remove every element of sin. People who are sinners will be put into a place of punishment. Those who have put their faith in Christ are going to be put in heaven and going to have eternal fellowship with God and so shall we ever be with the Lord when we ask the question why should you be devoted to God very simply the answer is this there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun now you say I don't believe in heaven or hell and I want to ask you a question then why do you care about living so much if there's no heaven and no hell, what does it matter when you die? What does it matter if you die? In all my 25 plus years as a police chaplain, at dozens of death scenes, I've never heard anyone go, well, he's just dead. I'm serious. It's a great tragedy. It's a great heartbreak. It's a great separation. It's a great unknown. 
unless you know the Lord. Why is death such a challenge for us? Well, very simply, class, it's because God didn't create us to die. Death is not a normal part of life according to God's creation, but it entered because of our sin. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing. See, I've given you every herb that yields seed on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, you shall have it for food. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Now, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of Good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. God created Adam and Eve in perfect sinlessness, and he put them in the garden, and he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to have children. I want you to fill the earth. I want you to run the earth. I want you to, to, to steward the earth, to be the farmers of the earth, if you will. And I want you to obey me by not eating from that tree. And, of course, what did Adam and Eve do? They fixated on that tree. Eve did first, and then she led her husband, and they both ate, and they both came under God's punishment. Now, if God was absolutely righteous and just, he would have put them to death right then and sent them straight to hell. But God didn't do that. He was gracious to them, he, God says they found out they were naked, and so God clothed them with animal skins. Now, the, the nakedness and the clothing is not about their physical existence. It's the picture of their spiritual existence. They found out that they were now disconnected from God, and they were in trouble because of what they'd done, and, they, and the scripture even says they went and hid from God, which is a silly thing because God can see through the bushes <laughs> and God looked down and he thought I knew this was coming God wasn't surprised and he was planning to be gracious and he went and killed those animals and covered them and of course that killing of the animal and the covering with the skin was a picture of something that God would flesh out as he revealed all of his truth to us and we really see it fleshed out in this passage in Isaiah that talks about Jesus before he even came to earth, this prediction of his life. And it says he, Jesus, has borne or carried our griefs, and he's carried our sorrows. Yet when we looked at him, we thought he was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It literally would mean we looked at him and thought he was off his nut. Whatever word you want to use, crazy, insane. But the reality is he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was put on him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God says at the very last book of the Bible that he's keeping track of our sins. Until we come to faith in Christ, God's writing them down in a book. And he says, someday we're going to be judged by that book. 
Now, the beautiful thing that this passage teaches us here about Jesus is this. He says that when we died, God took that, that part of the book full of our sins and he laid it on Jesus. And he punished Jesus for our sins. When Jesus was on the cross and, and it was dark and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he died and he took the punishment of God because we couldn't take it. We couldn't pay it. God punished Jesus for us. When Christ was lifted up on the cross, God laid on him the sin of us all. And our sin is removed when we humbly come and say, God, I believe in Jesus. These boys today gave testimony to that. That's why Kyle was so careful because many people do think that going through this water ritual gets you saved, like you do something to please God. And God says, no, this is just a picture of the real thing. And the real thing is when you say, Jesus was the Son of God who died for me, and God sent him to die for me, and I can't save myself, but all God asks from me is, will you believe in Jesus? Will you put your faith for your salvation there? And when you do that, your sin is taken away and the righteousness of Christ is implanted in you. And the most immediate, life-changing impact of salvation is that we gain the, the confidence of heaven when we die. Those of you who don't know me, probably don't know my wife who's sitting over here. My wife a year and a half ago was diagnosed with stage four T-cell lymphoma, which will take her life someday. And she said to me shortly after the diagnosis, she said, it's gonna be okay one way or the other. And it is. In fact, I gotta tell you, as I go around and try to help churches and try to help people, I'd almost like to go sooner than later. <laughs> She's getting off easy. She's not going to have to put up with me as long as I got to put up with me. If you got that diagnosis, would you have that confidence? That is the heart of being a Christian. It is the greatest blessing of being a Christian to know my sins have been forgiven. No, I'm not perfect. No, I've got lots of work to do between now and the day when I see God face to face. But praise God, whenever that day comes, I am ready to go. And you say, well, what's that have to do with the warning about the wolves? I'll tell you this, every day there's a wolf saying, no. Famous guy, famous Christian named Rob Bell a few years ago wrote a book and he basically said, no, God's not going to send anybody to hell. Frankly, I wish that was true. You know, because it's not fun to say, listen, folks, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, you're on the road to a place you don't want to spend eternity. But the reason I say it is because it is the truth of God. And if you don't get scared of hell, you might not get excited about heaven. 
And the enemy doesn't want you to be scared of hell. He wants you to join him there. And of course, the devil's not there now, but he's going there soon. And he'll be there for all of eternity with you unless you put your faith in Christ. But the great blessing that is ours that comes through the word of God is eternal life. Go back to 2 Peter chapter 1 and look at the second great blessing that comes from this. God gives new life now. 2 Peter chapter 1. It's that new life is summarized in verse 4. God has given us exceedingly great and precious promises. That's a way to speak of this truth of God in the word. He's given us these promises that through these, you can be a partaker of the divine nature because you have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The word corruption here, as it's translated in, my, in the New King James, means to be ruined, something that is that is not as it's intended to be. It's broken down. It's falling apart. In Ephesians, we read it this way. This I say, therefore, in testifying the Lord, that you, you who are believers in Christ, should no longer walk as the rest of the unbelievers walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all kinds of uncleanness with greediness. Now, if you don't understand that passage of Scripture, go to Hagen's Grocery today and go to the checkout line that has magazines and read the covers. Okay? Read about Miley Cyrus, who was married for about two minutes. And now she's getting a divorce. She'll put a good spin on that, and so will the guy she's married to. I don't remember his name. You know what? It's a heartbreak. It's a ruin. It's a breakdown. No, nobody gets married thinking, well, probably only last a month, maybe two. Well, that's just the way things are. People are optimistic. Wow, this... And, and, it's, and it's not that they think it'll work out, it's that they hope it'll work out. Maybe this time, maybe this person. And, you know, we could go on through the headlines about children's lives ruined this way or that way or the other way. It's because of the wisdom of the world which wants to say you can live any way you want to. And you should be free to live any way you want to. And that sounds really great and liberating, but the result is actually slavery. The true liberation comes from Christ. When we start walking with Christ, as I did when I was 19, I, I put my faith in him earlier, but I really got serious about it when I was 19. And, and, and I found a woman who was serious about it. And we did our best to raise our kids that way. And and now we're here watching our grandkids get baptized. And, and you, know, you, know, you know what the drama is we talk about when we get together? It's whether or not we're going for ice cream tonight. <laughs> now, I, I am not patting myself on the back. Because I absolutely will testify that I would not be where I am and neither would my family without this. 
But that's the wonderful possibility we have. God gives us a new life now. We don't have to live for sexual conquest and then go from one partner to another. We don't have to become tired of our spouse and ruin our family with adultery or divorce. We don't have to pursue the material stuff of life to make ourselves feel happy until we're overcome in debt. We don't have to be overcome with anxiety and fear so much that we only find solace in a bottle or a pill. We're free from the ruin of sin and empowered to live the Christ life. If, you, if you've learned Christ, you've been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, you can put away lying. You don't have to lie. You can speak the truth. You don't have to live in anger. You know, the world does studies and they say, hey, people who live in anger have heart problems. No joke. And what's the solution? Well, get in a comfortable position and breathe. I can tell you stories about people who truly believe that and how it came out in their life. Okay, listen. There's only one way to get rid of the anxiety of your life, and it's Jesus through the Word. But that's the potential that is ours. That's the possibility for those of us who have believed in Christ we don't have to steal. We don't have to want stuff so bad that we take it by some ungodly means. We can work. We can enjoy work. We can have for us and have to give. What a great thing. We don't have to be bitter. We don't have to live in wrath or anger, clamor, which means yelling. These are all words that talk about the, the wicked expression of anger and of hatred, evil speaking. We don't have to be that way. We can be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. We can be like Christ. That's what this Peter passage, this Peter passage says here. We can partake of the nature of Christ. What a wonderful thing. And, and I, I, I've come to see this as a summary of what it means to have the life of Christ. And the word, talking about Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of his fullness, we have all received. You have the nature of Christ within you, if you are a believer in Christ as your Savior. Now, that doesn't mean you're divine. You're not going to be a God. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the character nature of Christ. And, and so what we understand is our salvation infuses us with the life of Christ. What more could we need to live life? Well, the third great blessing that's ours is this. God gives spiritual life through his word. Here in Peter, we notice these phrases. Grace and peace are multiplied through the knowledge of God. God has given us all things for life and godliness through the knowledge of Christ. God has enabled us to partake of the divine nature through exceedingly great and precious promises. Everything that God has promised to us, has offered to us, has put at our disposal, has put within us, comes through the word of God. This is the means. You can't sit on your chair and say, oh God, make me patient. Okay? Now it's a fine prayer. Okay? I can tell you what the result will be. It's when you get in your car and drive down the street, the light's going to be red. And the next light's going to be red. And then when you get to that place where you're going, those people are going to be obstinate. And when you come home, your family's not going to be all that either. 
And the only way you will learn how to be patient in those situations is right here. And so we learn the word and we take it with us. And when we come to the red light, we stop and we think, how would Jesus think about the red light? I know that sounds like a silly thought, but Jesus either would think one way or the other. And so we stop and say, Jesus would say, well, you know, I've got an extra minute here to sit and pray, to relax, to talk to my loved ones, you know, whatever it is. And, and when he gets to that, those obstinate people at work, how would he think? He'd stop and say, oh God, help me to shine like a light for you here in this place. He'd get his eyes off of himself and he'd get it on other people and so on and so forth. But we're only going to learn that here. If we're not people of the book, we're not going to enjoy the benefit of what God has made available to us. The word of God is the means to the new life in Christ. And, and of course, we understand that first and foremost in regard to salvation. I declare to you the gospel, the good news which I preach that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Without the Bible, there's no salvation because it tells us of God and it tells us of how he has worked and how he wants to work in us. But then also in terms of the Christian life, God has given us everything that we need to know for life and godliness. So now turn with me back to Acts chapter 20. And I want to review this command before I give you the moral to this story today. Acts chapter 20, and I want to remind you of what Paul said, starting in verse 28. Therefore, let me just take the freedom of putting it this way, therefore, because eternal life comes from Christ through the word. Therefore, because new life comes from Christ through the word. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God for which he purchased with his own blood. For know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, watch. Be on guard. Remember that I didn't cease to warn you, and I told you everything that God wanted you to know. Verse 32, now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance amongst those who are saved. God gives believers the responsibility of the word. And so here are some questions for you to consider in your relationship with the word of God. First of all, have you believed in Christ according to the scriptures? Don't tell me you love God. Don't tell me you love his word if you have not put your faith in Christ as your savior. Okay? Oh, you could enjoy some things. You might like coming to church. You might like reading the Bible. You know, even folks who really don't like the idea of what I'm talking about today love some parts of the Bible. You know, God is love. You know, that sort of thing. Have you believed in Christ as your Savior? First John says this, 
These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you might know that you have eternal life. One of the things that shocked me, frankly, uh, as I counseled here, many people from around the county who were referred to me by their church because they knew I would counsel according to the word of God, I encountered some people from a particular variety of evangelical church if I said to them, if you died tonight, do you know for certain that you'd go to heaven? They basically would say this to me, well, that's kind of presumptuous. Because they have believed certain doctrines from the scripture so strenuously that they think it's not proper for an individual to say, I know that my destiny is with Jesus in heaven. Now, I don't say that because of me. I say that because of this verse from 1 John 5. God wrote this so you can know that you're on your way to heaven. That you, that you might know that you believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. If you don't know down in the depths of your soul today that you have eternal life, I just want to say to you, you can know that. You can face forward confidently with whatever may come your way. So have you believed in Christ as your Savior? Number two, the second question. Are you invested in the Word of God as though your life depends on it? Now you say, well, that's, that's kind of a silly question. No, it's not. See, because for some people... This is a hobby. Uh, I, I played golf a little bit when I was here. And I'm the kind of golfer who believes if you pay 20 bucks for nine holes of golf, you ought to hit the ball as much as you possibly can. <laughs> it's all included. There's no extra charge. Okay. So I had a set of golf clubs. When I left my church in Seattle to come up here, I'd started to play golf there. One of the guys gave me a club that I think cost $300 for one club. When I left here, I gave it to Glenn Golay because I thought he'd get more use out of it than I would. And he goes, yeah, that's a pretty good club. You know, he went out and tried it out. Golfing is okay to be a hobby. But a lot of people treat the Bible the same way. Well, you know, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, but yeah, I'm not going to be a fanatic. You know what, folks? Your life depends on this. You, you say, well, I, I don't think so. If you don't think so, it's because you haven't understood that yet. And you haven't understood the quality of life that you could have. So many people in the world look around and they go, well, you know, what are you going to do? It's the best you can do. This, my life's kind of in a shambles. That's kind of the way lives are. No, it doesn't have to be. God can give meaning and purpose in all of our life, but it comes through the Word. Um, look over at chapter 3. Look over at chapter 3 of, of uh, Peter. Excuse me, Second Peter. And the very last two verses. You, be, you therefore, beloved, since you know all that Peter has been teaching us in this book, since you know it beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But, 
instead of allowing that to happen, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, what we didn't study in the middle of this book of 2 Peter is this. Peter is warning Christians about false teachers. He starts out by saying, look, God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. And the next section of chapter 1 says, so grow. Do all that you can to, to grow up in Christ and be that person that Christ has meant you to be. And then he says, because... There are false teachers coming. He, he mimics what Paul wrote in Acts chapter 20, and he says there's false teachers coming. They will pervert the word of God, and it will mess you up. And then in verse 17, as he wraps up, he says, Now since you know this, be on your guard so that you're not led away with the error of the wicked. Instead of that, you need to be growing are you invested in the word of god as though your life depends on it in 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 timothy paul told timothy this take heed pay attention to yourself and the truth of god's word continue in them for doing this you will both save yourself and those who hear you now i don't believe he's talking about eternal salvation here he's talking about the the salvation of life in the sense of working through life in a meaningful and and effective way god has given us everything we need for life and it's in this word are you reading it are you learning it are you meditating on it are you living in it as the only path for life so here's the question i like to ask people don't raise your hand i'm not asking you to respond i just want you to respond in here and if you're taking notes maybe put it on the paper what is your current plan for spending time in the Word and in prayer on a daily basis? What is your current plan for spending time in the Word and in prayer on a daily basis? If this is the stuff of life, then we ought to be taking from it every day, a little bit, a little bit. I don't read big pieces of the Word of God every day. I'm a, I'm a small-minded guy. I've got to get a little piece, got to get a little piece, got to get a little piece and try to live it out. But you know what? If you do that for like 40 years, you might be able to preach at the baptism day. Okay? Because God's word, according to the Old Testament, God talked to his people and he said, I want to give you this stuff, this truth, but I can't because it's only gotten peace upon peace. Precept upon precept. In other words, you learn a little bit, you learn a little bit, you learn a little bit. But the only way that happens is if you're committed to it as though your life depends upon it. Some years ago, I had a, a lovely Christian woman who used to clean my teeth. And so we had a deep friendship based on once every six months getting together <laughs> and sharing everything about our lives that had happened in those 20 minutes or so. And uh, she, was a, she was a genuine Christian and uh, so, you know, we, this is going on, our church is doing this, and her family, and my family, and so on. And one time, we, we got, after several years, she was talk, we got talking about Facebook. And boy, she loves the Facebook, she loves to keep up on the family and the friends and know what's going on. She says, I get up 15 minutes early every day just so I can look at Facebook in the morning. And I said, is that before or after you read your Bible and it was very silent in the room. Yeah. I look at Facebook every morning, but it doesn't interfere with reading the Bible. Okay. 
what's more important in the morning? You know, years ago I had to make a rule for myself. No media, no, no, no Bible, no media. And for, for me, that was before Facebook, before the internet. So we turn on the Today Show to see what's going on in the world and say, no, can't do that till after the Bible. Bible's got to come first. Are you invested in it as though your life depends on it? Number three, do you answer life questions out of the commands and principles of Scripture? Again, this sounds awfully simplistic, but I'm telling you, from what I hear in the world, it, it's rocket science. Okay? Again, I'll come back to this verse. Take heed to yourself. Pay attention to yourself and the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Uh, Stephanie, who you know, Stephanie and Roel, her twin sister, Molly, is here today. Uh, she's the one that doesn't look anything like Stephanie over there. And she will call me up and say, hey, got a question. Last time she did this, she had some friend, and she puts her on the speakerphone and uh, asked this question, and I said, okay, well, here's the deal. And I had to, give, had to give a little theology lesson. And hey, it's not my fault. It's the fault of my theology professor, who always said, when somebody comes and asks you a question, first of all, say, do you have 20 minutes? Okay. Now, I'll tell you the reason for that. You can't give a, a one-sentence answer to a question that requires a theological groundwork. If you do, there's no basis for that person to carry it out because it's just my word. So she called me up with her friend. and Okay, well, here's the theological groundwork. Then here's the answer to your question. And then she goes, thank you for that sermon on demand. Click, you know. <laughs> When your family comes to you with a question, does the answer come out of God's word or your word? That's what I'm saying. When your coworkers come to you with a question about life, okay, I'm not talking about electricity, I'm not talking about plumbing, I'm not talking about that. Life, when they come, does the, do you stop and go, what would God say to this person? See, we have to do that to get in the habit, to just stop and say, what would God's answer be for this person? This is absolutely vital for those in your closest circle of friendship and especially your family. I was not a perfect parent. I'm not a perfect parent now. I'm very close, but I'm not there. <laughs> and they will attest to that. But the one thing I managed to get across, Sue and I together, the one thing we managed to get across was, what does the Bible say? Because if we don't start there, we don't end up in a good place. This is what liberates us. This is what transforms us. This is what frees us. I have a friend who was leading his church through the confrontation of a woman living in adultery. Member of their church, having this affair, and these were, these were leader-type people in their church, and uh, working, working. They got to the point where they're going to have to go public and say, folks, this person is unrepentant. She continues to live in adultery, and we're going to have to put her out of the church in a technical sense so that we might minister to her in a different way. And her best friend in the church came in to talk to the pastor, and they're talking about this, and the pastor starts to say, well, all I'm trying to do is follow the Bible. 
Okay? And he goes, all I'm trying to do, and she stops him, and she goes, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to follow the Bible, but I just think we need a little more common sense. <laughs> Ooh. Now, in that very poignant illustration, you all get it. But what about all the other stuff of life? I spent some time with some Christians recently who told me I ought to lie. And I, yeah, I, I cannot give you the context, that wouldn't be appropriate, but I'm telling you, they were, they're talking to me. <laughs> you know better than that, and they should have known better than that too. They were telling me in certain circumstances, you just have to lie. I've heard that, I heard that from a police officer. And then pretty soon after that, he wasn't a police officer anymore. Hey folks, Either, either the word of God is true and we can follow it or it's not and we should abandon it. There's no middle ground. If your common sense isn't biblical, it isn't good sense. Next question we ought to ask is this. Are you praying for opportunities to share the gospel according to the scripture with people in your life? Praying for the opportunity to share. Not just praying for them to get saved. Praying for the opportunity to share. And if you would say, well, I don't know how to share very good, then come here on September 28th and get educated about how to share in the realm of creation and science and Christianity. That's a critical role that'll help you there. And there's lots of other things you can get prepared. Are you, do you believe in the salvation of Christ revealed in the Bible so much that you want to be prepared and you want to share it with people as you have opportunity? And then the last question, do you defend God's truth. Listen to Jude chapter, well, there's only one chapter in Jude, but. Beloved, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting to you to contend, to fight, to strive, to work at earnestly defending the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For, and here's Jude saying the same thing that Peter and Paul have said. Certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness. They deny the only Lord God, our Jesus Christ. God says, listen, Christian, you need to be like the, like the Old Testament people of God who were rebuilding the wall and, and they had a sword in their hand, or a sword girded on them and a building trowel in their hand. They were ready to fight and they were ready to build. Now, we shouldn't be argumentative, we shouldn't be mean, we shouldn't be looking for a fight all the time, but I'm telling you, it's God's way of defending his truth to do it through us. I call it being a pushback person. The devil pushes on God's truth. And you can look down through history, there's a whole series of attacks. And in my lifetime, there's a whole series of attacks. And then some Christians stand up and go, no! And you know what happens? That attack dissolves. And then a new attack comes. Now you could be discouraged by that. Or you could just take encouragement and say, you know what? I'm on the winning side. And so I am going to push back. Uh, the most recent push on the Word of God comes from a guy named Josh Harris. Josh Harris wrote the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Some of you may have heard of that or read that. 
And he was all the rage of creating this new approach to marriage that he called courtship. And you don't date, and you do this, you do that. And then he wrote the second book called Boy Meets Girl. And it was really about how you date in a godly fashion. And then he got married, and he became a pastor. And then after he was a pastor for a while, I said, you know, I should probably go to school. So he quit being a pastor and went to a seminary. And after he graduated from seminary, he said, you know, I'm really not a Christian anymore. He left his wife, and he marched in the gay pride parade. Okay. Josh Harris, you may not know him, but in the greater evangelical world, he's a big deal. And his defection or his apostasy or his giving up on the Christian faith, kind of a big deal to a lot of people. A lot of unbelievers are going to point and say, see, see, I told you, see that right there? Well, as soon as his story came out, there's a guy named John Cooper who's a member of what you and I would most commonly call a Christian rock band called Skillet. I don't know their music. I know my son knows it. He always liked Skillet. I don't know if some of you may know the, the Skillet group. And uh, I tell you what, I don't care what kind of music he plays or how many tattoos he has or how long his hair is because he came out and said, you're wrong, Josh Harris. He said, what's happening in Christianity? More and more of our outspoken leaders or influencers, as the word is today, were once the faces of faith, and now they're falling away. And at the same time, they're being very vocal and bold about it. Shockingly, they still want to influence others. I have a few specific thoughts and rebuttals to statements made by recently disavowed church influencers. And, and here's the, the important part, I think. He said there's a common thread that runs through these leaders' influencers that basically says this. In other words, when these people defect from Christianity, they say something like this. Nobody else is talking about the real stuff. And John Cooper says this is false, faultly, flatly false. I just read today in a renowned worship leader's statement. This is another guy who has defected from Christianity. How could a God of love send people to hell? Nobody talks about this, end quote. And John Cooper says, as if he's the first person to ask this? Brother, you are not that unique. The church has wrestled with this for 1,500 years, literally. Everybody talks about it. Children talk about it in Sunday school. There's like a billion books written on the topic. Just because you don't get the answer you want doesn't mean that we're unwilling to wrestle with it. And then he says, it's time for the church to rediscover the preeminence of the word and to value the teaching of the word. We need to value truth over feeling, truth over emotion. And what we're seeing now is the result of the church raising up influencers who did not supremely value truth and who have led a generation who also don't believe in the supremacy of truth. Here's my point in reading John Cooper stepping out in public on the internet and saying, you're wrong, Josh Harris. He just gave a great answer. He said, are you telling me we haven't been talking about God and hell and heaven and how this all works? Are you really telling me the church has never talked about this? And so you're losing your faith because there's no answers for this. He's saying that's baloney. 
Are you the kind of person who will call somebody out on their baloney? That's what it means to defend God's truth. You need to come to that seminar and learn how to defend, God, defend God's truth in regard to creation. There's no science in regard to creation in the world. Just recently, in fact, another incredible note uh, that something I read uh, online was, a, I gotta look up the guy's name, because I don't wanna leave you hanging. A guy named David Galerter, a Yale mathematician called by people out there in the world a major intellectual, has come out and said, I can't believe in Darwinian evolution anymore. Now, he doesn't believe in creation, and he doesn't believe in intelligent design, but he's taken one step away from Darwinian evolution. That is absolutely mind-blowing to the secular world. Okay, Are you prepared to defend God's truth? I can't finish today without a picture of one of my grandchildren. Um, Harrison's 11. So, so 12? He's 12. So 13 years ago, Molly calls me up and says, hey, I want you to build a crib for your first grandchild on the way. Not enough that the grandchild interrupted our very first ever trip to Cancun that we never still have taken yet. <laughs> but I'm not bitter. Okay? says, I want you to build a crib. And it was like, what are you talking about? I don't build things like that. You know, I, I, I build, uh, I build a, you know, a little box, you know, or a little shelf or something like that. I built a couple of the cabinets in the office and don't look too close at them, you know. Yeah, I want, she's insistent, going to build a crib. So I go online and I look and here's a, here's a model of a crib and you can buy the plans for the crib. So I, I bought, the, bought the plans and it's a detailed blueprint came with all the hardware and all this stuff. And, and so, you know, I'm making this thing, and it's going along pretty good. I got to one point, and I drilled one hole wrong, and then all the other holes on that leg were off because it was based on that hole, and I had to start over and so on. And, and I worked and worked and worked because my first grandson's going to lay in it. That's kind of a big deal. I don't want it to fall apart when he gets in it. And so there he is laying in the thing. Now he's 12 years old. There he is. Raise your hand, bud. Yeah, you come to my church, you got, you're an illustration. <laughs> and several of the other kids, probably, probably your, both of your kids laid in it and a bunch of the other ones, you know. Listen, the product was important, so the process was important. God says he's given us the exact plan for life. The details. It's here. We need to read the plan, believe the plan, follow the plan. After decades of watching people build their life, I'm absolutely convinced this is the one and only plan worth following. And Satan knows that. And that's why he's doing everything he can to push against it. And you will be pushed and prodded and tried till you meet Jesus face to face. And the question I'm asking you today is, will you push back? First of all, by building it into your own life, and second of all, by helping to build it into others and to help defend it. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for what you have done in my life. You have refused to let go of me and 
And I, I, I see the blessing of that in my family. I see the blessing of that in this church and other places. And I'm so thankful for that. And I just give you the glory through your word today. I know there's no other path. And I pray for these people today that they would be drawn to your truth. If there's somebody here who's never put their faith in Christ, Father, I pray that you would stir their heart and that they would, they would not be at rest until they come to faith in Christ and they know you personally. And for those who do know you, Father, I pray that the word will take a more central place in their life. And that even if it's central, that it'll become stronger and more important. And that that will be evident in them and in their family and in this church and in this community. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.